Hello and welcome to the weekly message podcast from Crozet United Methodist Church in Crozet, Virginia. We invite you to join us in person any Sunday for our contemporary service at 9.30 a.m. or for a more traditional service at 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org for further information. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Crozet UMC. not in the middle, we've just kind of started this series on human sexuality. And as we do this, it's important for us to remember that we are being asked as individual Christians and disciples of Jesus Christ, as well as local congregations and indeed the global church, to determine what our future stance will be in human sexuality and inclusion in the church. And before we get into the scriptures and what that means, I'd like to just explain where we currently are. This is a a question and some commentary that we've got. What does it mean? What is the stance of the United Methodist Church currently? And the United Methodist Church actually has a very broad and pretty liberal view when you look at the the grand scheme of denominations in the world on where we stand on um, sexuality and inclusion. In the United Methodist Church, laypersons, laity, can be any sexual orientation. They can have any sexual expression. They are able to be legally married to um, non-heterosexual marriages. They are able to do that. The difference is that the United Methodist Church places all of the limitations and the requirements upon the clergy, meaning that all of those who are ordained or serving as clergy are restricted to our vow is faithfulness in marriage and celibacy in single. And the United Methodist Church only recognizes marriage between a man and a woman, heterosexual marriage. And so the limitation is upon us. If I were to proclaim that I was non-heterosexual and I was to own up to that I am living that out sexually, I am expressing that sexually, then I would be the one that would be penalized. The United Methodist Church does not hold any members or laypersons to that same standard. There is nothing that we would preclude you from doing. You can join the church, you can attend the church, you can be leaders in the church, you can receive all the sacraments. All of the things that we would allow anyone to do are available to all people. And so, again, it sits mostly on the clergy. As clergy, I also cannot perform and officiate a non-heterosexual marriage. Even though now in Virginia such a thing is legal, I am not allowed to do that. And so if I were to officiate a marriage between two gay persons or two people who did not identify as heterosexual, then I would be held accountable for that, and I could lose my ordination and my orders. So most of that onus sits here and with clergy. However, the reality is that most laypersons like to be able to know that their clergy are like them, that we can have the same life experiences, that we can be similar. And much of my ministry thus far has been marked by people making comments about, I really like that there's a female pastor because then my daughter can see what it's like to have a female pastor. Or it's nice to be able to see that women like myself can be clergy. And that same thing exists for all people. All races, all nations, all ages, all genders, people like to be able to see themselves in their clergy. And so that's part of what's at stake here in the United Methodist Church. What is going to happen is that next month, the global church is going to descend upon St. Louis, Missouri, 
And they will have this discussion, and they will consider not only the two plans that are viable out of the work of the Commission on a Way Forward, but they will also open up the floor to petitions and movements and amendments and plans that come forth from the delegation. And what we have discovered is, because I have vetted this and asked everybody all the way up to the bishop's office, that only the delegates, only the 824, I believe, uh, delegates, half clergy, half laity, have vote and voice. So even though I will be in attendance, they said that they will not listen to me. Good luck with that. <laughs> there are other ways to be heard than a microphone. Um, and so th that's part of it, is that they, that's who's limited to being able to make motions and movements on the floor. And as we journey towards this, we cannot as a de denomination expect for us to rightfully discern what God would have us say, do, and be if we don't do that individual work as Christians, both clergy and laity. And so we are undertaking this together because ultimately every congregation will have to decide whether it will stand with the decision of General Conference or it will make its own way. And that's what's at stake. And so we come to these scriptures, and the scriptures that we have done, the scripture that from Deuteronomy last week and the scripture this week from Romans, are those scriptures that have been used in decades' worth of conversations in and around non-heterosexual expression. And what does that mean for us? And this is a very difficult passage. Now, I could have done the two out of Leviticus that most people are very familiar with where it uses the word abomination. We could use that. However, most people have this kind of response to that kind of argument. Well, that's the Old Testament and that's the Old Covenant. And I would like to hear what Jesus had to say or what came after Jesus. And so when you have this reading out of Romans, this can be a very difficult text because this is post-Jesus. This is a letter that comes out of the New Testament. It's authoritative. It comes from the Apostle Paul. It is undisputed. Of the 13 letters, the epistles that are often attributed to the Apostle Paul, who was called into service by the resurrected Jesus Christ in a transformative encounter, this one is his final authentic letter. It was written to the Roman church while he was imprisoned in Rome, and he knows that he is going to die in Rome. They are going to kill him. They are going to martyr him, and he knows that this is the end. And so he must say everything that he has wanted to say, everything he must get out now. That's why Romans is actually the, long, the longest of the epistles, because this is his last opportunity to speak the truth. And Paul is an incredibly passionate. That, that doesn't even seem sufficient, that word. He is zealous, according to him. Zealous. He was a Pharisee. He was a scholastic, educated, um, profoundly devout Jew, and he was so invigorated by his Judaic faith that he was a champion of Judaism. And so when Jesus and his 12, and then later as they gathered more and more followers, began to change how they understood the Jewish faith, Paul was one of those stalwarts who said, no, we're not doing this. In fact, we get introduced to Paul when he is known as Saul, and he is part of the persecution of these early Christians, these Jews who have converted and are followers of Jesus Christ. He believes that they need to be corrected, they need to be silenced, and if they will not be corrected or they will not be silenced, then they need to be stopped. And so he is part of this persecution that is going on. The book of Acts records that he was there when they stoned Stephen. 
Stephen, who had been a devout disciple, was preaching and testifying about the glory of God in Jesus Christ. And because of that, he was taken outside and stoned. And Saul was in attendance. And the text records that the people who were partaking in the stoning laid their coats at Saul's feet as an acknowledgement not only of his authority, but of the fact that he was here to bear witness that they were doing exactly what should have been done, which was getting rid of Stephen and that voice and that perspective. When he has his encounter with the risen Christ and is transformed, he is given the new name Paul. Saul becomes Paul. And at that point, all of the passion and the rigor and all of the just all-consuming lifestyle that he had put into being a Pharisaic Jew is now turned to Jesus Christ. And when he does this, he is all in. There's no messing around with Paul. And he is so laser focused so that nothing, absolutely no opinion, no practice, no deed, no act, no word should get in the way of making our way toward the kingdom of God. And when we look at who Paul is, we know that he's passionate. And I was having a conversation this week with someone who was talking about how leadership styles differ, and some leaders believe they are the hammer, and they are there to pound the nail in. Paul is a sledgehammer. Paul is there to annihilate that nail, and he wants everything to be smooth and flat and straight because we are marching to Zion in Paul's eyes. And when Paul comes to Christianity, he is there to just focus everybody. But he also believes that everybody is supposed to be going into the kingdom. He believes that everybody has a place there and that what we need to do is figure out what we need to leave behind so that we are free to walk into the gates. And as he struggles with that with people, helping them to become focused, to change their words, to change their actions and their deeds, and in in truth, their life, so that they can be oriented towards Christ as he is now oriented, he struggles very deeply with sex. And he struggles with sex because he thinks that Jesus is eminently returning. He is coming back soon. Paul believed within his lifetime, Jesus would come back. If, If you had told him that it would be a decade Before Jesus came back, he would have been shocked. If you had told him that it would be 2019 right now, his mind would have exploded in a mushroom cloud. The idea that Jesus has not returned yet. And so with his assumption that Jesus is coming back soon, he just was trying to get everybody to hold it together, right? Everybody just hold it together. Have you ever been in a car load with a bunch of people who can't stand each other and you're like, just hold it together, we are almost there? That is Paul. He is driving the car, and he is like, I just need everybody to just hold tight for just a little bit longer. We're almost there. And with Paul, he struggles with the way in which people are trying to reconcile their faith and their life. It is not easy to just meld the two together because they were living in a society just like ours that is rooted in human expression, both verbal and in action and sexually. And he just wanted everybody to just stop having sex. He says this, just stop having sex. And if you can't control yourselves and get married, but that's not as good as just not having sex. And if we had all had listened to Paul, well, we wouldn't have had little Christians and it probably would have died out a while ago. However, he is struggling with the fact that sex can become a barrier for people. They can become consumed and obsessed. And yes, we know, addicted to sex. And so by kind of pushing that off to the side, he was hoping to focus people. Paul's ministry is what we call in in, in the world of clergydom triage 
ministry. Triage ministry is about coming in in moments of extreme need when there is pain and there is suffering and being the presence of God, being there to provide pastoral support and give people what they need just so they can get through. It is usually short-term, it is spot-on, and then there is this kind of relinquishing of the role and the power as the person moves on in their life. We see this a lot in what we call chaplaincy. Hospital chaplaincy, hospice chaplaincy, military chaplaincy, these are ministries of triage. And in the United Methodist Church and the Virginia Annual Conference, of which I am an ordained elder, we are required to have six months' worth of chaplaincy. And we do this through a program called Clinical Pastoral Education, and most of that involves being at a hospital. I did mine when I was in Norfolk at Norfolk General Hospital with a level one trauma center, and within the first 24 hours, I knew I was not called to that. And that's really crappy when you realize you're going to do it for six months. Because I'm that person that wants to walk the walk. I want to do the journey. I want to be there for the good and the bad. I want to see how this plays out. Sitting with someone for two hours as they were struggling with the results of a test that came back only because they happened to have a car accident and the airbag knocked them out and now they found out they have brain cancer and then going home and coming back the next day and finding out they're gone was gut-wrenching to me. That was horrid. And then because of our laws and HIPAA, I'm not allowed to go into their file and find out where they live and make contact with them. That's against the law. I'm not allowed to do that. And so I would spend every week going, I hope they're okay. Did they get what they needed? Miss Smith was waiting to find out her test results. Did she get her test results back? And what about Ken, who wanted to find out if he could make connection with his son because now he found out that he's dying and his bypass failed. I don't know what's going on here, and this is horrific, and I don't even have a way to pass them off to anybody. That is not for me. 24 hours, and I knew that that was not for me. I would have had an aneurysm to do that for my entire life, not, or at least a bad ulcer. That is just not who I am. Instead, I give thanks because I know that triage ministry is not for me. I and others like me are called to pastoral ministry like this, where you can come by my office, and we can have a chat, and then we can continue this journey for years. We can do this forever until Jesus comes back. I don't have to worry about it. But instead, there are those who are called to triage ministry like Paul. And part of triage ministry is not paying attention to all this other stuff and just focusing on what you need right now to get you through. What is it that you need right now for your spirit to be strong enough to get through whatever trial or tribulation is confronting you? And for Paul, it was easier to say, just stop. Just stop doing these things. Everybody stop having sex. Everybody. And if we look and we're honest with ourselves, because we are sexual creatures, we express ourselves sexually, we have sexual urges and inclinations and affiliations, and we live in a hyper-sexual society. We live in a hyper-sexual society. And because of that, we are constantly inundated. Just the other day, I had to have the sex talk with my nine-year-old because he was watching a YouTube video about a video game. And it came up in the YouTube video on the video game. And he turns around and he asks me a question. I'm like, wait, what? Where did you get that? What are you talking about? Where did you get that? Use it in a sentence. And then I realized, okay, this is happening. He's nine. However, you might not be aware that the average age at which children in this country are introduced to hardcore pornography is eight. 
eight. My son is old to be getting this talk. And so it's, it's uncomfortable. That is not a comfortable thing, right? And the whole time he's like, oh, I don't want to talk about it. And I'm like, I know, but we're going to talk about it now. He's like, I'm never watching YouTube again. And I'm like, good, but we're still talking about it. We're going to talk about it. And don't go to school and talk about this. Right? You have to, we have to talk about it because he was confronted with hypersexualized talk. Because people are so laser-focused on sex in our culture that it just permeates everything. We're talking about a video game with dancing in it. Why are we talking about this? Because this is where we are. And Paul recognized that some people, the second you start talking about sex, get zeroed in on sex. And nothing else exists. And when Paul starts talking to the Roman church, and ideally all the churches, he's focusing in on some of the things that he sees to be a problem, right? And this is his critique that he offers. And we have to wrestle with this. We can't discount it because it is the New Testament. He is a verified apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the book of Acts. And he is offering an authoritative take. And all of us have to wrestle with what this is. And I realize that we want to find some way for all of us to peacefully coexist. And so in order for that to be authentic and real, then we must deal with the text where it is. And he says some things that are hard to hear. It says that God gave up some people to their degrading passions. Just as the psalm reiterated for us, some people were so dialed in to getting what they wanted that instead of worshiping God, they worshiped their own bodies and their own creation. And it says that God gave them up to degrading passions and that the women started to have lesbian sex and that men started to have homosexual sex. And it goes on to say that they were consumed with passion for one another. Consumed, meaning there was no space in their life for anything but sexual expression. Men committed, and this is where it gets pejorative, shameful acts with men and received in their own persons the due penalty for their error. Now, if you continue on in this passage, it says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to their debased mind and to things that should not be done. They were filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, craftiness. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, rebellious towards parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. They know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, yet they not only do them, but even applaud others who are practicing them. That these are people who are so consumed with their own happiness and pleasure and joy that everything has been tainted. This is not about specifically a larger discussion that we are having here, but it's about watching people who became so consumed with sex that it perverted everything. And brothers and sisters, that includes heterosexuals. That includes heterosexuals. When I was researching for this sermon and I started to look at all of the crimes and all of the ways in which humankind have perverted heterosexual sex and have used it to cause not only mental pain, but emotional distress, physical pain and suffering, the ways in which we use it to manipulate people, use them for our own ends, and actually hurt cause pain of unimaginable consequence. I understand sometimes why Paul said, just stop. Just stop. And in the United Methodist Church, I have been to the clergy session of annual conference, and I have watched as ordained clergy have turned in their elders and disavowed themselves of their 
of their ordination because of sinful heterosexual sex. I watched with incredible anguish as the pastor who confirmed me turned in his ordination after having an adulterous affair with a church member. And we were left reeling, going, how can this be? How can someone who was so gifted and so bright and such a blessing, how can someone do something so hurtful, hateful, and wrong? How can someone do that? Because he's a sexual being. Because he's someone who fell prey to his sinful sexual urges. And he allowed them to consume him. And he then had forsaken all that God had called him to because he pursued that. And that isn't about homosexual sex. That's heterosexual sex. The stakes are very high in the church when we start talking about sexuality. Because everybody wants us to be a church where people can come and experience Jesus Christ. I just want to stop for a minute and just say this. I don't believe in the entire spectrum of people having this conversation, the polar ends of the dichotomy, that anybody wants to destroy the church. I don't, now, I'm sure there's some sick person somewhere that is trying to destroy the church. That's an outlier, and I'm not listening to that. What I'm talking about is the people that are for radical inclusion and the people that are for radical exclusion and everybody in between, none of us are trying to destroy the church. I do not believe that. I believe that all of us are earnestly striving to have a denomination, a church that reflects the love of God for God's people. Right now, we're struggling with how that fits in with the question of sexuality, and it's a vital conversation that we have to have. The time is beyond when we should have had this conversation. But all of us are struggling because I think every Christian wants people to find joy. I'm not talking about temporary, temporal happiness. I'm talking about the kind of joy that lets you thrive when the rest of the world can only survive. The kind of joy that lets us say, it doesn't matter the state of my marriage or lack thereof. It doesn't matter what's going on with my kids or my parents. It doesn't matter what's going on with my family or my friends or my bank account or the state of my mortgage or my credit score. It doesn't matter whether or not I'm employed or whether I'm going to get a promotion because at the end of the day, God is my Lord. Jesus Christ is my Savior, and I know that I am loved and forgiven and free from my sin and my guilt. That is the kind of joy that the church offers. And we want everyone to have that, do we not? The question is, how do we make that available? And it's not only how do we make it available, but are we expecting people to receive it in the right way? It is not a permission to go out and sin. That is not what that is. Being part of the church is about saying, I have seen and heard and encountered our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and I want in. I want into the kingdom to come. I want to receive the grace of the cross. I want everlasting life so that there will not be one moment, one day, when I am not with God. That is what the gospel promises us. But it tells us that there are things that we must do and things that we must not do. And we are struggling to figure out what are those things with regards to sexuality. Heterosexuals, homosexuals, bisexuals, pansexuals, the spectrum is huge now. All of us are having this conversation about who is in and who is not. But the conversation is not about who is in, but what is permissible. 
the conversation is not about who can come into the kingdom. All of us are supposed to be in the kingdom. Jesus died for all of us. And we are here to make sure that we remove obstacles. And when we look at Paul, we are inspired by the way in which he was so focused on making sure that everybody could go in. He was not trying to exclude people and cast people aside. And we do an injustice to Paul and anyone else when we assume that that's what they're doing, trying to just negate an entire segment of society. Instead, we are struggling with the same thing that Paul did. How do I get all of us in there? What is my understanding? And the truth is, there is no simple answer. I told you that I have no voice or vote at called General Conference, and that is true. But I go because I believe, and the scriptures have told us that it is possible, that in the moment, God can do something that we cannot fathom, that we cannot foresee, that is unexpected and miraculously glorious. And I believe with all that I am as a United Methodist, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, and as an ordained elder in the United Methodist Church, that that is not only possible, but shall happen. Because we sit here a month out and we think to ourselves, well, the commission on the way forward put forth only two viable plans because one was ruled unconstitutional and is not even an option. But because of how we run this church historically, we do open up for there to be the movement of the Holy Spirit and for an answer to come forth. And out of 824 people, I got to believe that the Spirit's dialed into one. I have to believe that in that midst, if we surround them, those of us who have no voice and have no vote but have faith, that we can surround them and imbue them with not only our faith and our support, but our yearning for all of us to be together. Yearning for unity, that in that moment, that God will open up the mind and the heart of at least just one person who can step forward, take a mic, and show us the path that has been so obscured. I believe that that is possible. And I believe that if every United Methodist, not just here in Crozet, but around the world, are committed to that same vision, that God will show us what we could never create in our own. That God will enable us to find that path, the path that Paul saw in his mind, that Paul yearned for in his heart, that he has cast before every Christian, that there is a direct path between who you are right now and the kingdom of God. And Jesus Christ has paved it, and he will illuminate the way. That is what we believe as Christians. That is not a United Methodist stance. That is a God stance. And that is what we are struggling with right now. Now, last week, I started this series, and most of you were not here because it was snowing. That's okay. You're all forgiven. But... As we posted the video for the 9.30 worship service, it has 480 views as of right before this worship service. 480 people have watched that and have struggled with what we're struggling with right now, and they are looking to see what we are saying and what we are doing, because guess what? Very few churches are doing anything right now. That's what I've been told. But here's the, here's the wonderful truth about this. One of our church members shared the video, and in the comments, somebody wrote, Oh, I can see where she's going with this. No, you can't. No, you can't. I don't know where I'm going with this. You can't see anything. I don't know where I'm going with this. I have been planning this worship series for over six months. I have been wrestling with these texts. 
I will show you next week the Bible that I got at William & Mary. It was a textbook. A Bible that I got that has all the tabs of these same scriptures, these nine passages in it that I would read every single day. I have been struggling with this since the age of 20. What are we supposed to be doing? I have been wrestling with this, and I still don't know. Here's what I know, that God is good and that grace is ours. That's what I know. And I know that if we cling tight to that, if we hold fast to one another, and if we are committed to this journey, that God will walk it every step of the way. That's what I believe. And so, no, you don't know where I'm going, because I don't know where I'm going. But I know that God knows where we are going. I know, I feel it, I believe it. And with all that I am, I am committed to you. Because when I'm sitting in St. Louis, Missouri, which is not where I would pick for a vacation, when I am sitting in St. Louis, Missouri, and I'm watching this hot mess that I love called Methodism being played out on a global scale under the scrutiny of the entire world, when I'm doing that, there's going to be one thing I'm thinking about, and it is you. You are what will be on my mind and in my heart and aflamed in my spirit. That at the end of the day, every decision that will be made there will have to be ratified here by you as individuals and by you as the body of Christ. And I want for you to be unimpeded to continue to build the kingdom that you have been building every day here. That is what it is about, to move forward in unity. And I don't know what that will look like. I have no idea from where it will come. I'm kind of hoping it's a youth rep because I just think that would be hysterically wonderful. But at the end of the day, I don't care the vessel. I care about the content. I want a proposal to come from God through a human being. And I want God to show us that all of this angst that we have of our yearning to make sure that every person can not only have a place in the pew, but a place in the kingdom, that our desire to be faithful to God's laws and commandments and expectations for our morality and our behavior, all of that is fulfilled. And while I and probably millions of Methodists like me can't figure out what that would look like right now, I do know that anything is possible with our God. Anything is possible. And that if we pray if we ask that God will do it, Jesus tells us that if we knock, that the door will be open. And I'm standing here, and I'm knocking, and I'm asking you to knock with me, that God will open up a path forward for the United Methodist Church. Because this church has not only changed my life, I have watched it change the lives of others. And it is too glorious, it is too grace-filled, it is too powerful and profound to die. We are the body of Christ. And the world needs to know that we are here and that they can be a part of us. And that is what we are struggling with. And our work continues this afternoon and in the days ahead. And it is worthy. It is vital. And let none of us assume that we know until God confirms it for us all. May it be so. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you again for joining us for this week's podcast. We hope you found the message meaningful and we invite you to join us in person as we gather for worship at Crozet United Methodist Church every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org to learn about ways you can connect with God and your neighbors through the ministries of Crozet UMC. Have a great week.